0: For me, it looked a lot like um, starting out with uh, those questions that you just couldn't find answers for, you know, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening for other people? You kind of fall in that comparison trap. And then it started to be of what does this mean for my life? What does this mean about me? And those questions then cycled me down to places of then not having any confidence in myself, not having any hope for the future.
1: Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. We all sense it. Anxiety is on the rise. In fact, anxiety disorders are one of the most common mental health challenges in the U.S., affecting almost 20% of the population. However, only one-third of people suffering from anxiety get help. In our conversation today, we're focusing on the spiritual side of this issue. What does it look like to exchange our fears, our desires for control, for God's perfect peace? What does it look like to surrender everything to God, even when we are not guaranteed a perfect outcome? Today's guest, Clay Kirkland, will highlight a specific passage in Scripture people often quote, to combat anxiety, Clay is a Strengths Finder coach with over 20 years of experience helping people uncover and unpack their unique God given gifts. He served for 18 years as a director of the Wesley Foundation at the University of Georgia, one of the largest campus ministries in the nation, where he mentored and coached thousands of young adults. He has a master's in divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary and is a Gallup certified Strengths coach. Before we get started, I want to remind you that we are not medical doctors or licensed counselors. We suggest you see both if anxiety is an ongoing struggle for you. Now on to our conversation. Clay, thank you for being on Candid.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me.
1: So I wonder if you just take a, a minute or two and introduce us to yourself. Sure, and then we'll dive into the topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well. Uh, I did campus ministry for 19 years. My wife and I uh, both did that together uh, at the University of Georgia, the Wesley Foundation. Um, Over the course of that time, we somehow had six kids. (laughs) And so uh, we're one of those families that you try to avoid in restaurants or uh, in parking lots because we're just that family. We also homeschool. So now we're really that family for a lot of people. Yes. You're praying for our kids. (laughs) You know, hopefully they'll normalize at some point but um you know that we just were given such an incredible opportunity to be in a context for a long time you, you see a lot of people that work with young people hop around and and not judging or blaming them but to have that long view and uh for nearly two decades was pretty fascinating Uh, from a curiosity standpoint, but such a gift just from a ministry standpoint to just stay there is awesome.
1: And was it that sort of led you into campus ministry? Yeah.
0: So I was involved in that campus ministry as a student. I, I came out of high school very much a broken person, but also someone who was just coming out of a long stint of, Rebellion and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And so I knew I wanted to get my life right and plugged into the campus ministry that my brother was involved in at the time and um, loved it. Just swear I found God and found myself. And uh, at the end of my time there, I'd really had a vision for what uh, the staff could become at this place and, and really wanting to build out an internship program. So I I was a 22-year-old, uh, very arrogant and very uh, narrow-minded in so many ways, slid across a five-year plan to the boss and said, hey, I want to do this. And somehow he said, okay.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. And it became a 20-year plan. <laughs> it
0: became, yes. I worked 19 years on a five-year plan, so you can tell how efficient I am. And um, it was awesome. It was That was what I did.
1: Yeah. So... <laughs> The issue that we've brought you in here to mm-hmm. discuss is anxiety, sure. and so I wonder if it, if it'd be helpful for us if you could just walk us through your experience with that issue yeah. itself, and then we can kind of talk about you and your ministerial role sure. uh, into the students' lives from there.
0: Yeah. So you know, everyone has anxiety in some ways. You know, it's I got an anxiety when I walked in here and saw all this this equipment, but um, you know, and that's just an easy word to talk about, but. If I were to be honest, there, there wasn't that much deep levels of anxiety for, for me or for my wife um, until 2004. So 2004, we were working together in ministry. We both had started grad school. Um, and so it was stressful, but it was, we weren't anxious. But then right at the beginning of 2004, we found out that um, her mother's cancer had come back. In September of 2004, she passed away. And then by November of 2004, we found out that my wife would not be able to have kids based on um, some medical issues that she had and just had been, we just found out and we you were know, like, hey, you're not going to be able to do this uh, unless you adopt her or, or something like that. So uh, 2004, our world just got flipped upside down and we were dealing with the grief, but then also dealing with that. That death of that idea of, hey, we wanted to be parents, that was always such a huge thing for me to, to be a dad. And um, when I started to deal with that, it, that was when the anxiety started to set in. And the cycle of it, because when you deal with infertility, it's, um, you get reminded of it every month. You know? yeah. you, you're hoping and praying that's the month that things change, and then you're reminded of that. And you grieve, and then you try to find hope again, and then you grieve. And uh, it was three and a half years for us before we had our first child. And uh, which is a miracle story in and of itself. But um, that cycle of three and a half years was when anxiety was a companion of mine uh, in in ways that I'd never experienced it before.
1: And walk that through for me a little bit. Like what what did the anxiety look like in those moments?
0: Um, For me, it looked a lot like um, starting out with uh, those questions that you just couldn't find answers for. You know, why is this happening to me? why is this happening for other people? You, you kind of fall in that comparison trap. Um, and then it started to be of what does this mean for my life? What does this mean about me? And those questions then cycled me down to places of then not having any confidence in myself, not having any hope for the future. Uh, it just spirals you down into different places, different people you know, encounter it in different ways. But especially for me, it was so many things were going right, and then all of a sudden just this year happened and we hit a wall and in that wall we said it was a reflection and we started to look at ourselves through the lens of anxiety and it was – it wasn't a picture that either of us liked especially for myself because I just felt so defeated and so hopeless uh, about what, what could happen. And, and honestly, um, my wife and I were close. We had – still close with family but the primary thing that I felt when dealing with this was just loneliness, just felt alone um even though I was around people and even though my wife was great and and she was you know everything was great there but just still this lonely yeah. just like an absence of something and so
1: yeah they talk about the difference between aloneness and loneliness yeah. and I think that's you've yes. described it there you've described the loneliness aspect for sure um college ministry what are the things that you have seen as it relates to this topic of anxiety what yeah. are the things that you've seen come to your door
0: Well, honestly, it's been a growing trend and statistics will prove that. And so this, you know, it's not just an anecdotal thing from my own, my own It's Any stat will prove this for you. But what I got to see was um, college kids coming in and the level in which they would come in with, with worry, anxiety, and fear, and then their ways of dealing with it. And, and, it really wasn't encouraging, honestly. It was just sad. The rise of anxiety just kept going up and up and up. And um, what they would come with was just startling. And so it, we started uh, in 2000, 2001, obviously, the, the towers. And that changed everything in so many different ways. Um, 2008 and 2009, when the housing market happened, that changed everything. Um, and the iPhone was introduced, and social media was introduced, and honestly, that changed everything. Yeah. So, if I were to look at what culturally and, and in a societal way changed things, for sure, in America, terrorism, housing market, and social media mm-hmm. were, I would, I would say, are the ways that we could see easily major markers in history of when those events happen, and then the levels of anxiety going through what at that point was a roof and then another roof was built, and then it would go up through it again, and then another roof was built, and it would go through it again.
1: I wonder if it'd be helpful now if you could define anxiety for us, because yeah. I think you, you started talking about it at the beginning, that it's sort of like, it's a word that we throw around, yeah. but there's some roots to it, right? Sure. There's some connectivity here that I think um, it would be helpful for us to kind of define our terms.
0: Sure, 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 sure. So there, again, there's so many ways to define it. You can, try to define it from the Bible, you can try to define it from uh, psychology journals, or so many ways. I think an easy way to understand it is when we feel threatened, when something in our lives are threatened, and we don't have a way to, to handle it. Um, what's left after that? That's how I would describe anxiety. Uh, if someone says, I have a test, but I've studied for it, I feel confident in it, that test isn't a threat. And so right. there's no anxiety, even though for the next person, I have that test, and even though I might have felt like I studied, maybe I didn't study enough. And that threat to: Will I pass the test? Will this affect my life? And you don't know how to handle it. Then that, what's left is your anxiety. For some people, it looks a lot like fear. Other people get very angry. Other people get very much depressed. And, right. and you know, so the,
1: there's different emotional there's different reactions emotional to, reactions it. to sure. it.
0: But to me, it's that when something's threatened, and you don't have a grid for how to handle it. Um, that's what anxiety's left.
1: I want to keep the thread of your of your own story coming sure. through all of this. And so, if, I, if my timeline's right, yeah. you were facing anxiety, you know, almost in the middle of your own ministry, uh, to students. So, what did? How did you minister to people out of your own situation? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, I knew enough of what the truth was to to help people even though i wasn't able to latch on to it myself at times uh john wesley says to preach faith until you get faith right and so um i was preaching you know what what needed to be preached but it was a real battle because at that point you start to feel inauthentic you know like do i really believe this and i knew that i believed it but because i wasn't experiencing it um you, you just start to to struggle with that authentic place. And and honestly, I could just see the effects of it on other people. One of my best friends at the time was working with me and he showed up in my office one day, ghost pale, and looked like someone had died. I said, who died? What's wrong? He said, we're pregnant. And he knew that was going to be, you know, you. affect me. Yeah. and it, So it's mm-hmm. that type of thing where I felt. Horrible that he felt horrible when he should have felt so excited, um, and it's like, man, I've something's got to change. You know, was, that was a real big eye opener for me. It's like I don't want if it's affecting me. That's one thing, but when it's starting to spread out that way, it's like, man, I don't want this for anyone else to yeah. to be that. So um, it didn't change overnight at that point, but I got pretty intentional at that point to start processing things and and learning things. It was interesting. My wife at the time. <laughs> She was in ministry, but from 04 to 06, she was getting her master's in counseling while dealing with this. Wow! So it was God it was, has a sense of humor. Yes, <laughs> it was. Uh, wow, it was, those were interesting three years.
1: So I'm just thinking through that. I mean, you, you, you're sort of equipping and and, and and your wife's being equipped. Yes, for the very situation that you're that facing and I thought, you know, that's a good way to put it. You know, you can feel inauthentic. Let's fast forward to the resolution in some sense. I mean, I know these things are never really fully resolved, but what were the steps that helped you get to that assurance? Was it just like you said, like Wesley says, you know, just keep teaching it, preaching it until it kind of starts to infiltrate your own heart? Oh, there's
0: so many steps. And and I think that's so important to understand that this isn't a, a silver bullet. You know, you do this one thing and then, you're fine you know just, that'd be great right it, wouldn't that be awesome <laughs> someone would make a lot of money if they could figure that out um, but no so for us a lot of it was um, sharing our story with other people that we trusted and and who who could be the support for us when we weren't able to support ourselves um, uh, you know, it was kind of the the pre-Brené Brown um, vulnerability is, is sexy type thing. So it was very scary just to say, hey, this is where we're at and this is how we really feel about it. Like, yeah. we're going to take the Sunday school answer off and then this is how we really feel about it. Um, but when we started to do that with some trusted people, what they did for us was incredible. Just the support, the prayers, the um, physical actions that they did for us, uh, uh, we had a couple that really believed that things were going to work out. And so they they outfitted our house with a nursery before we ever had kids, just wow. in faith to believe um, that this was going to take place. We had a nursery for almost a year before wow. we ever knew that, that she could get pregnant. Right. So that was really helpful. Um, for me personally, I had to go inward before um, – I could go anywhere else to just say, all right, God, if this is if these things you say are true in the Bible and I and I taught that they were and I believed that they were, but I needed to just basically wrestle with God and be like, I need to see how this is actually gonna work out. If I've I believed something that's not correct, have I misinterpreted something from, from scripture. And so I started to dive into certain passages that spoke specifically to anxiety. Philippians is one of them. And just because I was in seminary I could turn it into an assignment (laughs) Um, really just started to go in there and find things out and um, in that discovery I found out so many things that were helpful but what I really found was the nearness of God Mm. and um, Mm. that was the game changer because it didn't change our circumstances but it it changed the way that I looked at our circumstances Mm. and it changed the way that I could handle our circumstances Mm. Was when I got reconnected back to God in a in a profound way because that anxiety just kept pulling me away from from those things.
1: We're going to come back to that in a minute, sure. Um, but I want I want to get back to the the overall discussion and and, and particularly as it relates to your ministry. Yep. So so you had talked about how it has sort of gotten anxieties on the increase, mm-hmm. but I guess my question is you know there's the uh, proliferation of anxiety, but was it getting worse in yeah. the sense that the anxieties were deeper seated, or, or absolutely,
0: yeah, and that was the thing. It was it was getting deeper and wider at the same time. Um, the things that people were having to deal with were were very different. Again, when terrorism started to escalate, you just had to start thinking about the world differently. Mm-hmm. I have the vivid memory of being in middle school on a youth event for church and the youth event was go to the airport with water guns and play tag (laughs) and we did we're running through hartsfield shooting people with water guns without getting arrested detained by the secret service today (laughs) absolutely (laughs) even the fact that you'd have water is there you know is like a, a sin but um so that's just a different framework than growing up in a place where you're you know that there's a security guard on every airplane to make sure that it's not you know, taken and those kind of things. So it, what kids were having to think about and consider and then in 2008, 2009, so many kids, their parents just seeing them go from successful and being able to provide to having nothing, uh, losing their house, those kind of things. They just started to have to worry about things that they weren't worrying about before. Mm. And so this isn't all, hey, kids are terrible these days. It was just the world was presenting them things that the brain probably wasn't ready to handle. They didn't have frameworks for it. And so, again, when you have that space between what's threatening you and how you can handle it, that's where anxiety will live.
1: You know, you talked about sort of the the, the time period in which you're sort of counseling a lot of students of terrorism and Mm. and the financial collapse and sort of thing. But, I mean, are there other recurring, like, uh, broader issues that are tied and associated with anxiety?
0: Sure. I think, um, well, one, if you wanted to go the route would be social media and and what that comes from that is, am I good enough Uh, and will I be accepted? So this whole idea of, of just the anxiety over who are they and are they enough. Uh, you just should see over and over and over again, because they were then introduced to someone's best version of themselves or someone's edited version of themselves, and it began to just wash over them over and over and over again with every scroll and with every post and with every like.
1: And, and it's reinforced and it's in that way, right? Constantly, yeah. and
0: so the the idea of worth and value, and again, if if when that gets threatened and you don't have a grid for that, you don't have a spiritual backing for that or a a relational backing for that, that's where anxiety will come in. That's been, the last 10 years, the biggest issue is, yeah, we can blame it all on social media, that's fine, but what the effects of that is, identity, who someone is, and trying to figure that out. They're all on a quest to figure that out, and they're not finding the answers (laughs) through what the phone can provide for them.
1: You and I have had a phone call before sure. this, and we talked about the the issue of normalizing anxiety yeah. because I think in some sense it's become normalized. Absolutely. I mean it's, it's so rampant uh, and so common that it's just a part of our daily life. Okay. So what are sort of the dangers of of thinking down that track?
0: Yeah, that's great, and that, that's been something that uh, we really were able to track with when someone would come into our office 10, 15 years ago – and we would either suggest counseling, uh, or uh, they they would be nervous, or they would almost whisper, "Hey, I went to a counselor." With and it's like, "Wait, what did you say?" And <laughs> I went to a counselor. Like,
1: right. So there's a, there's almost like a shame oh, associated major with stigma um, having anxiety having
0: anxiety and you well, have anxiety yeah. because you don't want to be known for having anxiety. And now it's. Oh, I'm anxious about this. I have anxiety about this. I talked to my counselor about this in the most normal of conversations. There's – I can't see stigma anymore amongst college kids. Um, Even amongst myself, you know, talking about the fact that I go to a counselor is – it, I, yeah. It's not something I'm looking around to make sure that who heard that. <laughs> no one's that? listening and yeah, recording so, it. I'm proud of it, and I love the fact that I do. And, you know? and, and
1: there are pluses and minuses on this, right? There well, are. Walk those out a little yeah. bit for us.
0: The pluses for sure is that now we can address issues that once when – you, when you hide something in the shadows, it's so difficult to deal with that. So it's been brought to the light. Uh, there's so much more education on it, psychoeducation, spiritual education around these ideas, which is great. There's so much um, just what we've understood about the brain and yeah. neurologically. It, all that I think is great. It sets us up to really get to the places where I think that we can live from. The major downfall is, is that when it gets normalized, we start to find comfort in that spot. One of the things that was most disturbing to me um, – Just from a heartbreaking standpoint was the issue of pornography. This is just one of the trends that I saw in dealing with pornography, and then I started to see it in anxiety. There was a lot of shame when it came to pornography that when guys were looking at it or girls were looking at it. Who do they tell? How do they tell? And so there was this huge movement of getting a small group, getting an accountability group, and share your struggles, share your sins, right? quote the Bible verse, confess your sins to one another, Mm -hmm. pray for one another, and you'll be healed. So it's like, oh, this is going to work. And as I started to see men and women do that, what I saw was that they started to find great connection and comfort in the fact that someone else shared their struggle. And so when they would share it, someone else would nod, validate that experience, validate that emptiness, validate that just the the angst within them and at that point they were connected to that person mm-hmm. and so then the next time they they got together they wanted to be connected to that person again and so they would share the pain the struggle the hardship the addiction and then they shared again and they shared again and they didn't stop looking at pornography they just felt more connected to people as they looked at pornography
1: and less shameful and less
0: shameful it. because uh-huh. they had a level of comfort and in ease with someone because the secret was out and it was also validated by saying, I struggle with it too. And so they were that, that connection. And when you continue to have something that you struggle with and you talk about it with people that you're, that you then connect with about, but you don't move past connection and comfort, that's what you'll crave. And you'll just keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it. And I saw that with pornography and I started to see that with anxiety because you'd see people start to talk about it. I have it. I've been diagnosed with it. I take medication for it and like, oh man, all that's fantastic. And then the next time they would talk or three months later, you talk to them. It's like, oh, I love, you know, I got some girls that I just talk with this about and that's so great. Like, awesome. Well, how are you doing? Oh, still... Still so much anxiety. But, man, I just feel so much better about, you know, where I'm at. And I was like, oh, so you just – what you're really saying is now you're just comfortable in your anxiety. And, again, not not trying to beat them over the head with the Bible, but that's where my heart would break. It's like I don't, I don't think Jesus died for you to be comfortable in your anxiety. But – you're at step one. Is there's just a few other things to go go for, and that was that was that cycle that I began to see with younger adults with with anxiety.
1: Yeah. So it's sort of an incomplete process. Yeah. So then, and I don't know if this is where the Philippians part comes in, yeah. but like, so what is the solution to that? Because mm-hmm. I I I think we could all think of people or groups who have done that, who yeah. have kind of created these um, clusters of. Accountability. Right. Which is there's not much accountability. It's more no. just accounting for Accounting for uh, But not your holding struggles. to right. a standard. Yeah. So walk us through the completion of that sure. process.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was one of the passages that I really just dove into back in the day, it's Philippians four, six and seven, where it says be anxious for nothing, right? So that I really didn't like that verse. <laughs> so I was I wanted to sit down with Paul and be like, how can you tell me not to be anxious when We're dealing with grief, and we're dealing with the death of of a dream, and how can you just say that? And uh, again, it's kind of going back to that point that when you go through that whole passage, you realize Paul's helping you walk through it, but he's just saying, don't be comfortable where you are. He's like, don't be condemned. That was the big part that that was helpful. Don't be condemned. And that's where I I love that the normalization of the talk about anxiety, because the lack of condemnation then lifts that when that's off then you can you start to move forward but it's where that comfortable part I don't think Paul would be very uh, satisfied with anyone being comfortable Mm. staying anxious but that word anxiety that that he uses there when you really kind of dig into it the every connotation is about being pulled apart or being pulled into pieces and if you ask anyone who has anxiety or struggles with anxiety that's a pretty common way that they describe themselves. I just don't feel like myself. I feel like I'm being pulled away from who I used to be or the things I love. and um, I feel like a shell of myself. They'll describe themselves as broken. And it's just the it's just language that Paul used. You literally become pulled apart by the things that are causing you to have anxiety. And he starts with saying, hey, don't be that way. And so, again, you can read that and be offended, but it's encourage everyone to say read that with the intent of why does he not want you to be that way because the solution for him is there's some steps but the solution for him is peace it's the foil of anxiety and that word that he uses for peace is really about being made whole and uh, so he's he's trying to say hey look i understand you can be pulled apart but understand that you can also be put back together and uh that's what I love about
1: that passage. Mm. And the steps in the process. Yeah. I've heard you sort of preach through this sure. before, but sure. but you know, just for the listeners yeah, who are course, saying Oh my goodness, I really feel that pulling apart. Yeah. And I think anyone who has ever felt that and you've already said this, but yeah. but it is it's a um, you almost feel like you're kind of dealing with this one issue and everything else is either Pulling away from it or detracting from it or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or it's kind of pushed to the side yep. or um, or you feel like you're being pulled in so many different directions. You have no stability. You have no um, sense of wholeness, yeah. you know, like you said, which is the peace aspect. Right. So how do we go from that to that?
0: Yeah, that's great. So he tells us to be anxious for nothing and then thankfully he doesn't in there. He says, but in everything and that word everything, the, the great thing about that, and this is why when – this is why it's great to take a verse and and take a passage and just sink in for a little bit, because you could read that uh, in a devotional and just discount it It'll or gone. put it you know put it on a bumper <laughs> sticker if you love it. But when you just sink in a little bit and and see some of those gems that are in there, because that word that he uses for everything obviously means a, a full picture and, and, and encapsulation of all things that are in your life, but it has a sequence to it. Meaning when he, so he use that word to say you do this one at a time and it's not I'm worried about this I'm worried about this I'm worried about this and then I just all that's supposed to magically go away he's like hey look don't be anxious so one by one that's really what he's saying in everything that you have going on one by one then do this and so he's giving you time for process he's basically extending you grace and that that place to say this isn't a quick fix and that's not what he's selling here. You can read that verse and you're like, okay, don't do this, do this. It seems easy. He doesn't believe it's easy. He believes that it's hard because of how, what anxiety has done. Pulled apart It's pretty gross, right? It's pretty heavy. So he's saying one by one, then you present your request to God through prayer and supplication. And so that idea of presenting to God is really taking the things that are pulling you apart. And learning how and starting to try to put those at Jesus' feet, of giving those to him. Because what's interesting is that when we have anxiety, we want to control something because if we can control it, we can fix it. It's like, if I hold on to this, maybe I'll fix it. Maybe it'll get better. Um, It would give me more anxiety if I let it go. And then then what? Um, But... It's weird how when we have anxiety and we let it ruminate and sit and sit and sit and grow, it's the thing that is killing us we, we actually want in, in the sense of we just want to hold on to it because it's the only thing that we know. I heard a story so long ago, but it is stuck with me because of what it is. It's, uh, I think up in Alaska, they were, they were trying to get rid of some wolves, and so they took very sharp knives, dipped them in blood – and then let the wolves come and have a blood popsicle. And uh, they, as they licked and licked, their tongues melted the blood because it was frozen. And then the knives started to cut the tongues and the wolves actually were craving their own blood at that point because it was warm. Mm. And um, they they would bleed out. Mm. And it's it's such a graphic picture, but it's true that sometimes the things that are killing us are the things that we start to crave. Uh, because we've just turned and become so much of a fr- just pieces and fractions of ourselves and so in this process paul's really saying hey look one by one take this thing and and give up control you here's where here's where your efforts have gotten you you're anxious so let's try something different and you present that and he talks about prayer and supplication he uses those two words pretty specifically but that idea of supplication is really about those heartfelt things that are all about your deep personal needs so this isn't pray for america pray for you know your family in these general ways there's nothing wrong with that but this is like what is the thing that is plaguing you what is the thing that's just pulling you apart get as specific as you can get as personal as you can and you take that to God. And he says, as we begin to do that in process, he, this is not a one-time thing. The language that he uses and the verbiage that he uses is all about process. And so it's a process of starting to detach yourself from those things that are killing you and surrender those things to the one who actually can put you back together. Mm. And His the prize of this process is the prince of peace. That's what you get. He doesn't say, if you do this, you'll get what you want. So I didn't read this and go, oh, I'll get everything I want if I just do this process. It's when I go through the process of surrender and dropping things off at the feet of Jesus, I find out that that process got me to the feet of Jesus. Hmm. And I'm no longer focused on where I was or what was pulling me apart or what I was struggling with or what I was lacking, I'm actually in the position and the place to receive anything I need from the one who can give me everything that I want and everything that I need. And so that process of surrender feels like this long journey, but the end of the journey is the nearness of God. Mm. And we know from the psalmist that the nearness of God is our good. Mm. And so that peace that you get is being put back together not by way of acquiring the things that you long for but by having god pull you back to towards him because when you're anxious this is what you don't hear hey i'm really anxious but i'm really like so good with god right now (laughs) you know you just don't hear that yeah you don't hear yeah my quiet times are brilliant and I feel I just God and I're so close and I'm ridden with anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't hear it's it. It's very
1: counterintuitive. It's
0: very right? counterintuitive <laughs> because we when we're being pulled apart the primary thing we're being pulled apart from is that connection with God. And not that God's left us or you know don't don't spiral down a theological path that we're not talking about here but it's just that that idea of you can be at peace. Mm-hmm. When things aren't going well, you can be at peace when you are not getting the things that your heart desires. And the only way you can do that is when your connection with God is enough. Mm. And that's really what Paul's saying is when you go through this process, at the end of it, you'll get God. And you'll have that peace that passes all understanding because it doesn't make sense. What makes sense is to be anxious when you're not – when you're threatened, to be anxious when you're not getting what you want, to be anxious when you don't know how things are going to work out. That's logic. But he's saying it's going to pass that because you will actually be at peace even if those things don't get added unto you Mm. you, because you'll have what you need.
1: I wonder if you could get specific for us because sure. I think we use the terminology a lot of lay it at the feet, mm-hmm. surrender it. Uh, yep. and, and I think it might be helpful if you used your own example Absolutely. Um, of what that looked like for you. Yes,
0: Yeah. So for us and for me specifically, it was – the desire to be a dad. I mean, now I can remember when I was very young, or I was eight. I had the names of all my kids that I wanted. No, I don't. None of those names have translated to ours right now.
1: But <laughs> your it poor was, wife. I know it was.
0: Uh, <laughs> I really. I wanted to name my first two boys Will and Lee, so that I could say Willie, come here, and then it would be even more efficient. Wow. Um, but so again, that was an eight-year-old's kid uh, understanding of, ki- of how to name your kids, but. The point is i just always translated the idea of what life will be about is that i will be a dad um my my dad's dad and he were disconnected um and they just didn't have that and my dad really did a lot to try to be as good of a dad as he wanted to be and i just wanted to do that for my kids i wanted to do that you know in a in a spiritual sense for, for the people that we took care of. That's later in life when I started to understand my role as pastor. I wanted to do that for people that biologically weren't mine, but that I just wanted to care for them in that way. Yeah. And um, so it was this deep, deep hearted desire that I had. And then when that was taken away from us, I had to then take that and say, all right, God, I can't control what I want and, and to have happened here. So I'm going to give that to you. And when I would give that to him, most of the time I would write it out, just so that it would, because it it just for me it just works better when I write. Just like I'm surrendering this desire of being a dad. I want it. I would tell him that every day. I want it. Like I'm not in the process. I didn't lose my desire of what we wanted. Right. Ever. Um, I want it. When we are praying for Deborah's mom to be healed, we want this but we surrender that and if we don't get it I'm going to trust that you're going to be enough because that's what you said and it wasn't threatening God as much as it was you have to get to the point to where what his word says can actually be true for you and so that's the point of surrender that I had to get to was you've said this so if this isn't going to be the case I'm expecting your word to be true that you'll be enough. That was the cycle of our surrender, because we had to do it every month, because it was again, hope and grief and hope and grief. But I would write it out, I I learned to journal prayers, Mm -hmm. I would write them out nearly every day, and always start with where I was, because he says, you know, that that prayer and supplication is supposed to be personal. So I always started where I was. And I ended the prayer of where the scriptures told me that God would be. And I found that cycle in Paul here. But what you really can see and where I found so much solace and and understanding, you see that path in the Psalms. You see David and the other psalmist giving license to every emotional state of being that a human that has. License meaning you can be this way because it's... It's housed in in Scripture. It's you know, and and God has stamped it as saying, "This is my holy Word." And David is ticked, and David is brokenhearted, and David is rebellious, and and all these other things. And he would just start with where he was. I'm frustrated, you know. I I want you to kill this person. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. okay, you're going to say that, right? So that gave me license to to take Paul's. Words And go, okay, I'm going to be as personal as I can. Say, this is where I'm at
1: Mm.
0: without any filters. Just this is where I'm at. And this is where you say you're going to be. And so help me bridge that gap. And I'm going to do that by just laying this down. That's what I meant by laying this down is putting yourself before him and putting the things that you want in front of him and then letting him be. He says he's going to be
1: the sufficiency of God. It's so funny. I just think about, um, you know, your example of using uh, David and the psalmist. It's it's the there's a progression. Mm -hmm. It's I am here, and then they usually end up saying, "But you're here. But you're here, and I want to be there." Yeah. But then I think about today, and I hear the expression, uh, "Follow your heart. Mm -hmm. Go where your heart is," and I think. Uh, the heart is a wicked thing; yeah. it's going to deceive us. But right. if our society is constantly following it, their hearts, mm-hmm. it's hard. There will never be a satisfaction. And so I wonder, you know, is that? Th- 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 I'm just, you know, kind of taking notes as you're speaking because yeah. there's so much to, to gain. And I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of this anxiety tends to come from this: what's going to triumph? What's at the center? Is it self, yeah. or is it something else? Right. You know, is it? Will it be God? Or is it just what I desire, what I want? Yeah. And and that attempting to hold those pieces together, you know, you use the word you know, to be pulled apart. Yeah. So am I trying to hold this thing together or am I am I going to lay it down in terms of this is not who I am? Yeah. That this will not make me, you know, the perfect person or anything exactly. like that. So I'm handing it over to you and I want to go where you are. Yeah. Um, But that all has to start with surrender. It does. Um, And and I think that's – gosh, that's a massive conversation, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Um, I want to ask you some questions about – and we've we've kind of briefly skimmed over this, but the issue of counseling. Sure. Um, Why is counseling important in dealing with anxiety?
0: Yeah, so many reasons. And um, one, it's so helpful because you start to get things – from your brain out into the open. And there's that spiritual idea of you know confession and things like that. So I'm not discounting that in any way, shape, or form. But what there's a narrative in your head. There's a narrative in all of our heads, right? Some of us maybe have multiple narratives in our heads. But uh, when you start to let someone listen to that and speak back to you what they're hearing and comment on what they're hearing, you start to get a better perspective on – where you are on the spectrum of is this real or is this did I make this up how you know where am I on that that spectrum so that to me is such a vital part of counseling just to let someone hear your story who's trained to listen to you and ask you questions and and offer advice that then can help you continue towards the places that you want to go um when you talk to yourself, there's nothing wrong with that, I do it all the time. But again, that narrative in your head, you you're the author of that narrative, right? And you're
1: And you deceive and yourself. You deceive
0: yourself. And you can edit that thing however you want to, right? And so letting someone reflect that back and say, Hey, why did why do you think that's true? And it pauses you. Because the narrative in your head doesn't hit the pause button, it's just going, right? So they pause your narrative and offer you a reflection on their interpretation of it, and it's so, so helpful in that regard. Mm. Um, I you know, if, Again, I know this is maybe what you wouldn't have expected, but um, I think it's great that counseling costs money because you're— <laughs> There's a bit of skin in the game, yes, right? your yeah. heart follows your wallet. <laughs> and when you invest in—if you if you go and talk to your friend at midnight, and you're just like, hey, I'm struggling, and they talk to you, and—, and they hug you, and that's great. Again, I'm not discounting community in any way, shape, or form. But when you pay someone 100 bucks an hour or whatever you know, to listen to you, you you're paying attention in that because you're like, hey, this is a lot of money. you know. <laughs> but I want to get something out of this. And so it immediately makes it intentional. Mm. Whereas, like I said, in that, that dangerous little rut that we can get in of just finding comfort by sharing what we want and then someone saying, I'm so sorry. We got that comfort from them. And and now we're just more comfortable in our misery instead of being asked a question or being challenged to actually disrupt that to move us somewhere else. Um, counseling, again, can also teach us those skills. I, there's this is so neat how scripture has been teaching us things like taking control of our thoughts and taking captive, you know, those, those ideas in, in our head and how psychology is kind of authenticating scripture. You know, this whole, the whole branch of cognitive behavioral therapy is really taking your thoughts captive, really retraining your brain, which we now understand now can be retrained um, to thinking rightly. And so counseling can really help set you on a path to understand how to think rightly and how to identify those narratives that are going to take you away from where you want to be and to stay on the path that you, that you want to be. So... I'm a, I mean my wife's a counselor my brother's a counselor uh, my wife and I see a counselor together I see a counselor by myself um, because I want to be the best version of myself and um, if someone spent years and years learning how to help people do that I, I want to take advantage of their expertise yeah. just like I want to go to a great doctor and I want to go to a restaurant with a great chef yeah. I want to I talk to someone who's, who's going to help me be a great version of myself and that counseling can do that
1: yeah why do you think that people push against counseling? Yeah. And how do we kind of normalize it in some sense? Yeah.
0: Well, the general excuses will be, uh, I don't have time. It's too much money. Which one do I choose? You know, what I always hear behind that is I always ask the question, what are you really afraid of? Like, what What's? What are you really afraid of? And um, most people are really afraid of trying it and it not working and then feeling a deeper sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. or having to come face to face with the things that they would rather just manage over here um
1: or keep in the dark or
0: keep in the dark for sure and so um i think you know what i would say to people often in my in my office all the time is hey i I probably won't go to counseling i'm like well then what's your plan and it's like i'm just going to do this and i said how long have you already been doing that And they would tell me, said, so what, why do you expect anything to change? Like, this is what your efforts have produced. You're in my office crying. Um, So why not, it's not that you're, you're not going to go backwards, your promise. And so what, why not try that? And so it's just that challenge of, you know, that, again, it's that narrative. They've rationalized why they shouldn't go, why they couldn't go. And I'm not saying that every human being has to be in a counseling room tomorrow, Um, but it's when you need it, it's there. And that's what's so great now is that it's there, it's available, it's normalized um, from the sense of it's a major aspect of our society now that I, I would take, say it this way. Instead of looking at all the reasons why you shouldn't go, just try to make a list of the reasons that you should mm. and uh, make a list of the outcomes that you would hope for your life and then send those to a counselor and say, can you help me with any of these outcomes? And if they say yes, then give them a shot because your current efforts are not producing what you curr- what you currently desire and so is there a person who can help you mm-hmm. move across that bridge to the to the places that you want to go
1: the sufficiency of christ uh dealing with our anxieties one by one and surrendering those to him Mm -hmm. and allowing him to be all that we need and desire Um, Clay this has been a really helpful conversation um, for me even personally Uh, I wonder if you could just close us by um, praying for our listeners absolutely I'd love that thanks
0: God thank you so much that you've given us your word to help us understand who you are and thank you so much that you have described yourself because you are the Prince of Peace and Lord, I just pray from the north, the south, the east, and the west, for all the listeners uh, here and there and everywhere, Lord, I, I pray that they would come to know you as the Prince of Peace in profound ways. I pray that they would be able to take that risk of letting go of the things they've been holding on to, of moving away from the things that have been hurting them and they've been, that have been pulling them apart. And, God, I ask that um, their eyes would be open. Their ears will be attentive uh, to the movements of your grace and, and to the your presence as you give that peace that passes all understanding. We trust you for that because you tell us that that's who you are, and we know that you are even better than we could ever imagine. So we trust in that goodness, and we believe you for those great things. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. Amen. Clay Kirkland, thank you for being on Candid.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org candid to connect with these pages and to share your questions with me. As always, thank you for listening.